We are in Luke chapter 23 and come now to uh, the picture of the cross as Luke describes it in his gospel. So far we have uh, seen this coming to a head. We have seen the road leading to the cross as we talked about last week. What, what really is, has been Christ's entire life has been the road leading to the cross. Uh, and we come now to the final phase of this journey of Jesus to the cross where we have seen his disciples as they have abandoned him. They've turned their back on him uh, and left him in the garden. We have seen even Peter who denied him three times. We, we saw him facing the mock trials before the Jewish leaders, before Pilate, before Herod. And ultimately we saw him sentenced to death on a cross at the will of the people. And now in our text today, we see this instance. We see Jesus, the God of the universe, the only perfectly holy and innocent person who ever lived, hung on a cross. That is our picture for today, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you would, turn with me in Luke chapter 23. We're going to read today verses 32 through verse 43. Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through verse 43. Two others were criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very heavy passage that we have before us. This scene in Scripture which we have now entered into is as dark and as, uh, and as sorrowful as a scene can be. And yet, Lord, here we find ourselves. We find ourselves with the task of seeing your word truly, rightly. But Lord, I believe also we find ourselves with the task of seeing the glory of God displayed in this dark hour. I ask, Lord, that we would see it truly, that we would see it rightly, and Lord, that you would work on our hearts today to understand why it is that this scene took place, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, when we think about this image of a cross, 
I think there's an unfortunate reality that's taken place in our culture today, and that's the reality of desensitization, a desensitization that's happened to the cross. We live in a culture today, today, we live in a world today where we see images of the cross all around us. We see images of the cross on billboards as we drive down the street, on commercials, on churches and buildings all across town. We see cross necklaces, we see cross tattoos, we see cross pictures hanging on people's walls. We are so, I think, inundated with pictures, images of the cross, that we, by and large, have become sort of desensitized to the reality of what it is. Even if you have grown up in a Roman Catholic context, whether in an area that's Roman Catholic or you've worked in a place, or if you grow, have grown up in a Roman Catholic home, then you know that they even depict the cross with Jesus Christ hung on it. And we have become desensitized, I think, to the gruesome reality that the cross is. That the cross of Jesus Christ is now, because of the world that we live in, fails to have the impact that I believe it really ought to have on us and on our hearts. In fact, one commentator noted that, that while many people can see or think about or picture a cross and think virtually nothing of it, pass it by without even giving it a second thought, but if we were to see, and perhaps even see a cross with, with Jesus Christ depicted on it, and we wouldn't give it a second thought because we are so used to seeing that. Yet if we were to ever see a cross with perhaps a dog or a cat being crucified on it, would we not grimace? Would we not be revolted by that picture? And I know that that's kind of a, a gruesome picture, and, uh, but I think it does demonstrate for us that the fact that we could see a dog being crucified on a cross and be so just put off by that, yet when we see the perfect Savior, the Son of God, depicted on the cross, in many cases, we almost feel nothing because we've become so accustomed to it. And I say this not to bring shame upon you or, or cause you to feel some sense of guilt because I'm as guilty as the next of this exact thing. And I, I think it just frankly is a product of the culture that we find ourselves in. It's, it's the context that we live. It's to a certain extent inevitable, I think. But what it does mean is that I think what we see as a part of our tasks, as a part of what my task is in preaching this text to you, in preaching on the crucifixion, is to bring to bear kind of the gruesome nature of this process of crucifixion. Because when we fail to see the crucifixion for the vile scene that it is, then we fail to see our sin for as evil as it is, and we fail to see our Savior for as amazing as He is. For that reason, it's necessary that here in this time, as we read this text, as we study God's word, it's necessary for us to come to an understanding and to see what exactly happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross. So the first point of our sermon today, the first of two, only two points, is the agony and suffering of Christ. In verse 32, we read in our text as we start, we read starting, there were two criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. And then in verse 33, we read, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Four simple words that the gospel writer inserts into our text here and nothing more to describe this nature of execution that was given. Yet in those four words is bound up all sorts 
of gruesome horrors and terrible pain and suffering and anguish. So we need not pass by this too quickly. Luke, along with the other gospel writers, all say it as simply as this. They say something to this exact extent. There they crucified him, period. The reason being that they would have understood that their readers would know what a crucifixion was and they would feel the horror and they would feel the agony of this great and terrible form of execution. But for us, I think it's necessary to take a closer look. Though the Romans were crucifying people on a massive scale, they were not actually the first people to utilize this form of execution. This method was actually practiced in a few different cultures before them, including the Persians, uh, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians. But once the Romans were introduced to this form of execution, this form of torturous execution, they became experts in this kind of punishment. They developed it into what it is that we see Christ suffering when he died on the cross. It could truly be said that though the Romans may not have invented it, they sure did perfect it. They developed this system of killing someone into a form of killing someone that was as gruesome and as vile as you could ever imagine. This speaks, I think, in part to kind of the, the nature of the Roman, kind of the, um, the evil, the wickedness of this Roman Empire, that they developed this system. They took this terrible form of execution and developed it into what it became and while I recognize that it's not a fun thing, it's not a fun process for us to think about, it is necessary for us to remind ourselves of the horrors of this process. When you think about a, a Roman crucifix, crucifixion, the crucifixion, the process of, of killing this person did not actually start on the cross. It actually began, began with a severe flogging or a scourging of this person that was to be hung on the cross. We mentioned it last week uh, just a little bit, that before Jesus ever uh, bore his cross, he was whipped brutally with a, a whip that was made up of several leather straps on the end of a stick. And at the end of each of those leather straps was some sort of piece of bone or clay or glass or something sharp that could dig into the skin of the person being punished so that they would stretch this person out with their arms up above their head to where all the skin on their back was not only exposed, but pulled taunt, and then whipped them with this whip that was designed specifically to grab flesh and rip it off on the backswing. This was the scourging that would be first and foremost, and many people died even of this whipping before they even made it to the cross. If you survived the scourging of the cross, the next thing was that you had to carry your own cross to the place where you were to be executed. There was no respite for those who were going through this process. It was not as though you were whipped and then given a break while you walked to the place where you were to be killed. No, no. It was your job to carry this up to 200 pound piece of wood to the place where you were to be executed. This served multiple purposes. It served so that, for one thing, the Romans didn't have to do it, but it also served as a source of shame that you would be marched through the streets oftentimes with a placard describing your crimes either carried before you or hung around your neck. Once you made it to the place where you were to be crucified, you would be spread out on a cross with nails driven into the hands and the feet. The placement of these nails was very specific. For if you were to drive nails into the hands of someone, 
of their palm, it would likely just rip out when they were raised up onto the cross. For that reason, they would drive the nails through the wrists. This was an incredibly, incredibly painful thing to do because it would just completely destroy the bones in the wrist. It would be driven through the nerves that run through the, the arms down to the hands so that not only was the initial strike of the nail just excruciatingly painful, but with every jerk, every jolt, every time you would raise your body on the cross, you would feel pain shooting through the nerves in your arms. Then the cross would be set up into its place. And it was described by historians that when that would happen, the cross, as it was set up into the hole where it was to stand, there was a jerk that would oftentimes dislocate arms and legs out of their socket when this person was raised into the air. Ultimately, the way a person would die by crucifixion was kind of a combination of various things, but one of the main things that led to death ultimately was asphyxiation. Because the way a person was positioned on a cross, it did not allow them to gather oxygen the way they needed unless they took their legs and pushed up off the bottom nail in order to gasp for air, only to come back down and live a little bit longer. It was specifically designed this way so that it would take as long as possible for this person to die, that this person in a desperate will to be alive and a desperate will to live would continually use everything that they have to push themselves up to gasp for air in order to live. It was said that this process could take up to four days sometimes for this person to die. And that even in those instances, the Romans had to remain there. The guards had to remain there until the person was dead. And so it was a relatively common practice for the Roman soldiers to come along and to break the legs below the knees of the person being crucified so that they could no longer gather air and would ultimately suffocate there on the cross. Through all of this, the design was to prolong the dying process in order to increase the anguish. Eventually, the victim would die of asphyxiation or of cardiac arrest due to lack of oxygenation in the blood or to dehydration or to blood loss or in most cases, some combination of all of these things. But the point was, through every aspect of it, they were kept not only alive but conscious and in excruciating torment through the whole process. It was absolutely perfected by the Romans to come to this point where it was as painful and as terrible as it could possibly be by the end of this process, Jesus would have looked mangled and mutilated beyond recognition, which was predicted of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, where the prophet says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of the coming Messiah on the cross. And add to all of this the mockery, the humiliation that came along with crucifixion. Crucifixions were not only designed to be excruciatingly painful and horrific in that sense, but they also carried with them a sense of shame, of humiliation, and they were specifically designed to be carried out that way. That this person, when they would be walked, when they would be marched to the place where they were executed, again, we mentioned last week, that they were not marched on necessarily the straightest route but they were marched through the most public route, specifically designed so that everyone could see this person and could feel free to spit on them, to ridicule them, to mock them and shame them. They were walked through the most public roads and they were hung 
in the most public places so that everyone coming in and out of Jerusalem or the town where a person was crucified would walk past this first person and see them, their crimes that they were crucified for, and would shake their heads and would cast shame and ridicule and mocking upon them. All of this being done as the person hung there naked and ashamed. And Jesus was no exception to this. The shame that was felt by anyone when, when being executed was magnified all the more for Jesus. When there were other factors added as well, we know from the other gospel writers that Jesus was not only hung on a cross but had a crown of thorns placed upon his head by the Roman guards in a way to mock him, saying, oh, if you're the king of the Jews, you need a crown. They placed this crown on his head, adding to the shame and adding to the pain that he went through. In Jesus' case, everyone around, everyone that was here to see this scene was taking place in the mockery, was taking place in the shame, in the scorning. We see in our text here that everyone, from the least to the greatest, we see the Roman soldiers coming along and making fun of him, mocking him. We see the Jewish leaders making fun of him, mocking him. The soldiers mocking him, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. Very similar to what the Jewish leaders said as they proclaimed, he saved others, let him save himself. This mocking would have been terrible and horrible for anyone, but especially for Jesus, knowing that the very things that they were telling him to do, he could have absolutely and easily done. Jesus could have come down from the cross. He could have put all these people to shame and executed them there on the spot. He could, and he did save others. Yet Jesus, there on the cross, hung, took the pain, took the torment, took the ridicule, In fact, we learn from the other gospels that Jesus was offered a sort of narcotic, a sort of uh, mixture that would allow him to have some relief from the pain, and he refused it. He did so so that he might be fully aware of everything that was happening to him, so that he might feel every ounce of pain, so that he might gasp for every breath, and so that he might understand every bit of ridicule. And so, as we will see, he might be able to pour out every bit of grace that he could. The point of all of this discussion of the cross is not intended to make you feel queasy. It's not intended uh, to turn your stomach, though it should. Rather, all of this should lead us to a great sense of sorrow when we consider what exactly it is that the perfect Son of God has done for us, which then leads us to the next next aspect of our text today, point number two the mercy and grace of Christ. For indeed, as we look at the cross, we see the pain, we see the sorrow, we see the gruesome nature of what happened, but we also see in the cross mercy and grace. In our text today, I think we see three profound pictures presented in our text that scream of the mercy and the kindness of Christ, our Savior, as he hangs on the cross. The first thing we see comes in verse 34, The words of Jesus where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of Jesus' crucifixion, as everything I just described, he is suffering right now in this moment. Where is his mind at? His mind is on forgiving wicked people. 
Who was Jesus speaking of in this text? There are some commentators, some theologians that take different positions on this. Some would say that, that Jesus is not speaking of the Jews, for indeed they willfully committed him to this, knowing that he was innocent. But they would point to perhaps the Roman soldiers as they just basically were doing their job, that they were executing this man, but uh, did not actually have a say in the matter. They were not the ones that condemned him. They were merely doing their jobs. And that may be the case. However, what we know of the grace of God, the forgiveness that is available in Christ Jesus, we know that it extends far beyond just these Roman soldiers. Jesus' statement here, even if in the moment it was directed specifically at them, we know that it extended far beyond them. I would argue that Jesus was speaking as a whole to all who were here in this moment. The statement that he gives when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do, this is not intended to indicate to us that these people don't realize that what's happening here is wrong. This is not Jesus forgiving them of any wrongdoing, saying that what they're doing is not wrong or indicating that they are ignorant of the fact that they are doing wrong. Everyone in this place knew that what was happening was unjust and that it was wrong and that it was vile. Every single one of them did. What Jesus is saying here, the statement he makes, forgive them for they know not what they do, is an indication that they failed to understand and grasp the magnitude of what it is they were doing. The magnitude of exactly who it was that hung there on the cross. That they were not merely unjustly crucifying a man, but that they were unjustly crucifying God in the flesh. For indeed, truly understanding that fact, none of them would have participated in this. They were indeed ignorant of the reality that this was God. We see from Jesus' request to the Father here, we see his heart to save sinners. This was Jesus' heart. This was why he came to this earth. And even in the darkest and most painful of moments ever experienced, this is where Jesus' focus is. Even in the midst of the agony and the suffering, his desire is the salvation of sinners, even the ones who were murdering him right then. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Again, this most amazing declaration from the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. We see it happening here in the life of Jesus, in the death of Christ on the cross. And we see it from Isaiah 53, 12. The prophecy says, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Indeed, Jesus was being now crucified as a criminal, numbered among the transgressors. But Isaiah continues, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The true transgressors, the most wicked of transgressors in this scene was those who were crucifying Jesus. And yet in this moment, he is making intercession for them. He is pleading to the Father on behalf of those who are now brutally murdering him. This also encourages us of the intercessory work of Christ on our behalf. The mediation that Christ does for sinners. The song we sang that there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus Christ. This is the work that Jesus is doing even as he is on the cross. And it's a work that Christ continues to do even today for all those who believe. You see, we come before God not hoping that we can somehow convince the Lord of anything, not hoping that we somehow have an argument that is suiting, but we come as the song before the throne proclaims having only one plea, 
and that is Jesus Christ. He works on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf. Had it not been for his prayer, and if it were not for his prayer, even to this day, that the Lord forgive us, there would be no forgiveness found. It is Christ's intercessory work that brings this about. And the fruit of this prayer even begins to come to bear while Jesus is still on the cross. We see it coming to bear in the man who ultimately is declared to be saved in this text. We see it even a little bit further past what we've read today when the centurion realizes this man is who he says he was. And I think we even see it when later on we see the people leaving this scene beating their chests, recognizing, beginning to understand the gravity of what has just happened. One commentator says it beautifully this way, that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. No sooner was Christ placed on the cross, set upright, and began to suffer was the intercessory work happening on our behalf. This is a beautiful picture of grace and mercy that he gives us here on the cross. We see a second demonstration of grace extended when grace is extended to the criminal next to him, as I've already mentioned. Let's read verse 39 through verse 43 again. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to this man? These glorious words, demonstration of his grace and his mercy in verse 43 And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is much that can be learned from the salvation of this thief on the cross. We can see all kinds of doctrines, all kinds of important points of theology on display in this cross, in this instance of this man on the cross. We see the lack of necessity of any work or of any sacrament. You can hardly be a reformed person in here or someone having a discussion on baptism and not hear this man put forward as an example of one who was never baptized yet finds himself saved, finds himself in glory, in paradise with Jesus. And that's true. We see the immediacies of a believer's entering into paradise upon death. There is no intermediate state. There is no place that we go. There is no time period between when we die and when we are with Christ because to be uh, uh, absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us. And that's true. We see here where Jesus, during this interim period between his death and his resurrection, we don't have to wonder where he is. He is in heaven. He is in glory. He is in paradise with this man. And all of these things are true. We see this very uh, example of the man on the cross, this thief who was saved, cropping up all over our study of systematic theology plays a role in this doctrine, this doctrine, and this doctrine, and we could elaborate on all of those. Yet, I would rather us focus on the more important thing, the more beautiful thing, the more magnificent thing, and that is the magnificence of God's grace in this man's life. For when we look at this man, there's much that we can see. There's much that we know. We know that there was not anything good in this man. This man was not crucified on a cross because he was a good man, but rather because he was the wickedest of the wicked. He was a terrible, 
horrible thief. In fact, there are some commentators that would argue that the cross that Jesus was on was actually intended for Barabbas. So it was possible that these men were Barabbas' accomplices in his crimes of murder and other things. Yet despite the fact that there was nothing good in this man, he was saved on the cross next to Jesus. In fact, Matthew and Mark both tell us that this man was joining in the mocking of Jesus when this all began. The other gospel writers tell us that as all the crowds, all the people are mocking, even both of the criminals began mocking Jesus. Which means at the outset of this whole process, this man was reviling, mocking Jesus. Yet somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit came and changed this man's heart. And he began to feel the weight of what he had done. This man was not some kind, good-hearted guy who simply got mixed up with the wrong crowd. No, he was as wicked as wicked comes. And yet even this man was saved. Even this man. Not because of anything he did, not because of any work done, but simply because of the grace of God and salvation. Yet, in this man's life, we are still given an example in this man, a picture of true repentance and the fruit thereof. Look at what we see from this man's statements. Everything necessary in salvation was present in this man's example, and not only that which was, and not, excuse me, and not that which was not necessary. Only what was necessary for salvation, but everything necessary was here. We see in this man, a fear of God, and that fear applied to Christ when he asks the other criminal, do you not fear God? We see that this man had developed in him by the Holy Spirit a fear of God and a recognition of Christ as God. We see in him a recognition of his guilt as he says to the man, we indeed justly are being killed. We are receiving what we do, what is due us. We are receiving the rewards for our deeds. He understood his guilt. He understood what he deserved, that he got everything he deserved in this instance. And we finally see in this man a desperate plea to Christ for mercy, for he knew that he was his only hope when he says to Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Everything necessary for salvation was here in this man. It would be foolish of us to think that Jesus just saves everyone at the last moment, they all go to heaven. This is what some people foolishly hold to and cling to. But that is not the case. But all of those who turn to Christ, who recognize him as the Savior, as the God that he is, who feel the weight of their sin and see Christ as their only means of salvation, to all of those he grants salvation. This man serves as an example that there is hope for any sinner who at any point in their life repents and turns to Christ. Yet we know that this was only one of the two men that were hung on the cross. Only one of these men truly repented and trusted in Christ, and only by following in his example can we be saved. We must remember that there was another criminal crucified that day, and this man died in the hardness of his heart and was indeed not with Christ in glory that very day, but only one. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one was saved that no sinner might presume. Let us recognize this, 
that this man was saved because he truly repented and trusted in Christ, not because he happened to be close to Christ, not because he was in the right place at the right time, but because by the intercession of the Holy Spirit, this man had a changed heart demonstrated by repentance and faith. The third act of mercy and grace that we see, I believe, comes in this crucifixion itself. The crucifixion of Christ. As I've already described, crucifixion is a horrible and grotesque scene and the one that is specifically designed to be as brutal and as painful as possible. And I believe that it is intended so, and I believe so because the text tells us, because it is intended for us to be a picture of our sin. A picture of the ugliness and the nastiness and the grotesque results that come from sin. And the grace and the mercy in this picture is that it was him on the cross and not us. That when we look at the cross, we see what we deserved. And when we look at Christ on the cross, we see that he took it on our behalf so that we don't have to. In the cross then, God the Father is saying to us, look, look at the great cost and the great ugliness of sin, your sin. Yet in the cross at the same time, God is saying to us, look, look at how great my love is, my love for you. If you would repent and turn and follow me. I don't believe that there's ever been anything more beautifully or poetically um, written on the crucifixion of Christ and what it is that's happening here than what was written in the song, a, a hymn written in 1804 titled Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. You may have noticed that was the title of my sermon today. This was a hymn written by a man named Thomas Kelly. And I want you to listen to these words as we, as we read and recognize exactly what it is that happened on the cross. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ that man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient of it. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, as you hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear, his cause disowning, Foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost. Christ, the rock of our salvation, is the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. In Jesus Christ, the guilt that stands against us is canceled. He has taken it for us. The pain, the anguish, the shame that he experienced was the shame and the anguish that each one of us deserve. But because of God's grace, he has poured it out on Christ for all who would believe. If you are here in this place today and you are coming to a recognition of the ugliness of your sin, do not hold on to it. 
Trust in Jesus Christ who has taken God's wrath for you. Lay your burdens at the cross. But let me, let me remind you again once more that only those who demonstrate the same fruit that was demonstrated by the man on the cross who truly repent, who truly trust in Christ and cry out to him for mercy, those are the only ones who will be saved. Do not trust in yourself for salvation. Do not trust in your own good works. Do not trust in your family heritage or where you find yourself on a particular Sunday morning, but trust only in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Let's pray.